podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It's Thursday. We just wrapped up stage six. We are currently sitting. What? Where are? What's happening? Johnny, what's happening? I'll take today's one. We are in a Chinese buffet at the end of the universe, <laughs> or at least that's how it feels. We're kind of near Mets. We drove into the the town or the weird suburb we're in, and there was like a like a. A junkyard with cars piled high. There was like abandoned buildings. We're now we're staying just down the road in a hotel attached to a big dilapidated 90s casino. If we emerge tomorrow with our lives and can go to the super planche, then that's that's the victory already. <laughs> it's a uh, yeah, it's an interesting spot we found ourselves in here. Yeah. Ronan, do you have any comments on, on where we are right now? I've, I've just noticed how huge this restaurant is. Um, just it, it's, it's basically a big warehouse that's been converted into a restaurant. Uh, and although it looks empty, I think in any normal sized restaurant, it would probably be pretty packed. There are uh, four tables that are being used, and there's like probably about 30 others that aren't. So the proprietors are very optimistic about the number of people who are going to be passing through this evening. There's nothing wrong with being optimistic. How was the buffet, though? Not usually the type of thing I go for. So <laughs> it was better than it's the, not, the it's buffet. It's not my favorite meal so far. Better than the press buffet at lunch today. Yeah. Yeah, but at least we had a good lunch on the road. We did. We we had a another weird place we went to. We just had a weird day. Yeah. We're getting the uh, obligatory people all around us looking at us like we're crazy people <laughs> for pulling out a bunch of microphones <laughs> in the middle of a restaurant. <laughs> I'm talking to me, and you're talking to you, and Johnny's talking to Johnny. Yeah, of course we're getting strange looks. <laughs> All right, guys, the, uh, it was it was a crazy stage today. Holy cow, it was a crazy stage today. Uh, big long transfer for us. Big long stage for the Tour de France. The longest stage of the entire Tour de France from bench to Longwy. We are back in France now. Started the day in. Belgium, basically on the border now. Uh, we're not too far from the Belgian border. We're actually not too far from Luxembourg yeah. at the moment either. And we're also not too far from Metz, which uh, maybe our American listeners will have a, a stronger tie to this particular city because this is that's where in 1999, none other than Lance Armstrong took yellow jersey in a time trial. I think it was stage eight. Pretty sure it was stage eight. I thought you were making a weird sort of reference slash joke to the New York Mets, and I'm <laughs> I was completely unaware of the Armstrong tie, but I'm glad that is the case. It's also the the, the site of the Mets massacre, uh, which was oh, what year was that? All my tours to France run together three years ago. Mikey is just like making he's just making finger numbers at me. What year? What year was it, Mikey? Our, our real he said, time. He said 2013. We have a real time fact checker over here. 2013, the year of the Mets massacre, we believe, uh, which was basically just a incredibly slick road. 2012. Yeah. Uh, our real time fact checker falls flat on his face, unfortunately. <laughs> in 2012, in Mets, uh, some of you might remember this. It, it was it was a well, it was a bad day. It was uh, a number of others ended up, ended up dropping out but basically it was uh, coming over the backside of one of the many sort of climbs around here we're not too far from the ardennes in fact i think this is the french ardennes region 
And so you get a lot of these really steep little uphills, downhills, and one of the downhills was covered in oil, if I remember correctly, or something covered in something. And basically the entire peloton fell down and it became known as the Mets Massacre back in 2012. So that's right around the corner as well. If, you, if you're sort of trying to place exactly where we are, tomorrow we head up to La Superplanche de Belfie. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit about where that mountain gets its name from Jose later in the show. But it's going to be basically the first real GC stage. Ah, that's not true. Time trial is kind of a real GC stage. Cobbles are kind of a real GC stage. <laughs> it's going to be the first uphill finish. True upper finish uh, of the race. Today was a 1.1 kilometer, 5.6% climb. You, I guess you could technically classify that as an uphill finish, but we're talking real mountains tomorrow as we head to Planche Belfi, and we'll talk a little bit about that stage later in the episode. But first and foremost, before we do any of that, Johnny, what happened today? What happened today? We had a humongous fight for the break. We were driving there and Ronan was watching it on his phone or iPad, had the commentary, but it was all kicking off. You had Wout Van Aert attacking multiple times to try and sort of get in, get in the break. Garant Thomas was saying that he was basically pulling apart the bunch on his own multiple times. I mean, Ronan, you probably saw more of that than us. Well, yeah, the opening, both the opening first two hours were run off at 52 kilometers per hour mm. uh, on not flat terrain so that gives you an idea just as to how fast they were going um, and yes White Van Art was in the thick of the action it seemed to be every time we got a, a camera shot change it was a it was a switch to a camera that had a, a view of White Van Art doing his <laughs> next attack uh, and there was plenty of other attacks also though there was uh, at one point we had Philippe Bogana, Thomas Pidcock White Van Art, um, the port, and at one other stage we actually had a small split go away with Roglic, or not Roglic, but um, White Van Art and Tadej Pogacar in it. So it was you, we, at one point we really had some of the big GC riders actually uh, getting involved in the accident, and I think a lot of that was driven by the terrain, which was very very rolling. We didn't have any classified claims in the opening section, but just it was so up and down, up and down, with these real big rollers, as we call them. Um, but also the fact that we had a side tailwind, which really, it, it wasn't enough to cause any sort of echelon action, but it was enough to really force the pace and, and, and sort of drive the aggressive nature of, you know, almost half the peloton were getting involved and launching attacks left, right and center. It was, it was fantastic to watch. And then it settled down a bit and you had Wout Van Aert eventually make the break in his yellow jersey, accompanied by American Trek Secretaries Quinn Simmons with his gigantic beard and earrings and tattoos and the rest of it. And then Jakob Fulsang as well, who was a, a peculiar inclusion. Then he eventually dropped off. He pulled over to the side for a nature break. Sort of was like, guys, this is this is not a bit of me. I'm not I'm not here for this. I just when you're on Jakob, I grabbed him for a split second oh, after yeah. the finish line and he didn't really want to get into any comments. He was waiting on Danish TV to go live, but he basically just said, uh, actually, I think he was, it was Sylvan Adams, team owner, he was sort of shouting across to, you know, the question was, why did you sit up from the break? And he said, well, because it was a waste of time. It yeah. was, it, I think the actual word what? he used was pointless. So he knew from that, <laughs> he knew there and then it was sort of doomed. So. He just took the opportunity to answer a call of nature enough. and went back to the peloton. Why did he go in the first place then? Well, you you don't know when you're going, I guess, that it's going to be pointless. But I feel like you probably could have guessed. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he probably <laughs> knew before he had to 
ants to call nature, but <laughs> anyway, that's what he did. And then those two, the, Walt Van Aert and Quinn Simmons worked together. Quinn Simmons, after the stage, described it as being on a motor passenger with his dad on the, on the, on a bike in front of him, which, to be honest, is quite apt, and that is how it has looked for the first sort of six days of the tour. Quinn Simmons eventually fell away, absorbed back into the peloton. Wout Van Aert as well. I, I can't remember exactly. Do you remember exactly when, when he got caught? I think it was 10K. 10K 11, got caught. 11, just 11K, over 10, yep. Sort of went through the group. He got dropped. Eventually, he finished seven minutes back. But as soon as he got caught, he was going to lose the yellow jersey. And then you had the couple of sort of punchy climbs, one at about 5K to go, the other at the finish line. And on that first one, Pogacar kind of, he showed that he was, on the next one, he was really going to go. He sort of came to the front, tested it a bit, kept looking behind, see what was going on. Then on the second one, about, how long was it? 300 to go? Probably three, 300 or less to go. Less I mean, to it, go. It, so, so they came into that, they came into that final with uh, Brandon McNulty and Rafa Micah, and McNulty ended up being kind of the last man. Mm. Uh, and McNulty's a, a incredibly strong rider. Uh, let's be very clear. I mean, if you'll recall, actually, back at Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympic road race, McNulty was the only rider to stick with Pogacar on sort of the major climb of that day. He's, he's, a, he's a wildly talented rider, American rider, but he was in lead out duty. Obviously he's, he's on Pogacar's teammate. So he was on lead out duty today. He made it to, yeah, I think about maybe eight or 900 meters up this, you know, 1.1 kilometer climb and then swung off. And there was kind of a funny moment where when he let, let off the gas, it swamped really bad, and that was actually the moment I think where, where Michael Matthews essentially lost the race. Mm. Uh, he might not have won it anyway, but he he fully lost the race on the, in that particular moment because he got swamped when when McNulty swung off, and then that was exactly when Pogacar went, uh, and then it was just, I mean, he looked like he was on another planet. He like we we were we were standing outside the UAE bus, which has a. TV on the side, we're watching this, and the whole press corps combination of like groans from those mm. who just want to see a tighter battle, uh, and a lot of just sort of like whoa, a lot of a lot of yeah. whoa, various whoa in various languages was happening uh, outside that team bus, and then silence, and then, and then silence. sort of everyone was everyone was because because the yellow the yellow jersey in the stage when it gets taken away i mean otherwise people may have stayed stayed there but everyone literally dispersed silently to the other all the buses were quite close today and everyone just walked away in silence it was a little bit eerie a little bit and it's weird how the press when everyone congregates to watch those final minutes a sort of hive mind develops and every, you can tell everyone's like on the same page for for the one time in, yep. in the race it was what 30 40 Members of the press sort of gathered outside the UA team bus just because it happened to be the first one that we yeah. came to that had a TV. And interestingly, first of all, when Pogaccio launched his attack, it was immediately clear he was going to win the stage. Mm. And that's when we had the groans in it. But then the closer you got to the line, the more silent the whole group got to the point where as he crossed the line, it was so silent around the bus that we were able to clearly hear the one or two UAE team staff who were there sort of high-fiving and <laughs> <laughs> whooping and sort of, it was, it, it just struck me as bizarre that there was so many people there, but yet the only people who were making any noise were like on the extreme far end of, of the group that was there. It's slightly unfair on Pagatra as well because he's obviously wildly talented. He does, he, he races as well. He's not wheel sucking and winning without winning a stage. He's, he's racing and that's what we demand so often. 
he's not getting beat, which is what we want to see exactly, sometimes. Exactly, but <laughs> it, it's, he's, he's, you know, he's, it's his own, it's his own problem to solve. He has to win, otherwise he doesn't win. And then uh, when he does win, everyone sort of, you know, he doesn't, he's, he's, not, cele he's not celebrated. What we he's not celebrated, yeah. It's, it's sad for him, I think. Yeah, we were just talking right before we hit record here that, you know, at some point, we'll try to write the sort of like, how do you think about Pogacar's story? And, mm. I, and I think that that's a really difficult story to write. It's a really difficult, it's just a really difficult concept to wrap your own head around because this exists, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists within cycling's sordid past as well. And you're trying to wrap your head around performances like that uh, with a desire and sort of like, let's put that, that situation we were just talking about in context. That, you're talking about a, a press corps who really just wants stories, right? Mm. We're here to do a job, and that job is to tell interesting stories to all of you out there. <laughs> and frankly, if the stories are somewhat one-dimensional, none of us like that. And so it's, I, I wouldn't say that the silence was necessarily a negative, it's not a negative reaction to Pogacar, it's a negative reaction to ah, we think we know what we're writing about for the next two weeks now, already, right? And, and it's a very, it would be a different reaction in, in a different group of people, but that's just who, that's who was standing there. It's just press, that was all it was. What I heard from the silence was a group of people thinking, what am I going to change to now? What am I going to go and write about now? That was, it wasn't, you know, had there been discussed at the performance, there would have been more groans in that. Yeah. It was more just, sort of everybody's mm. mind sort of having to shift from the idea that it might have been Nielsen Parlow's going to yellow or it might have been White Van Aert winning a stage in an incredible way to Pogacar's back in yellow and what the hell are we going to do tonight? I think I I think I mentioned this on an I got 800 words to file what am I writing about? <laughs> I think I mentioned this on an earlier podcast earlier in the tour but last year when Pogacar did that stage 5 time trial and Richard Moore sort of groaned when he went across the line and another colleague was like, oh, what's up? He's like, oh, you know, he might not, he might not, he might still lose his tour. And Richard Moore was like, I'm worried about the next five years of tours because that was how dominant and how classy a bike rider Pog is. And this year, the same has sort of held true up, well, so far. Yeah, we're going to remain upbeat about this. There's, there is a yeah. long way to go in this Tour de France. And frankly, today's racing, if you just... Let's talk about today's racing because today's just as a pure bicycle race, I think is one of the best stages we've seen so far because of that first hour. Mm. For our American listeners out there, you probably missed this. It happened at like you know three in the morning for you or whatever. Honestly, if you are a if you are a true connoisseur of the bike race, go find it because it is it was incredible to watch. If you only sort of caught the last ninety minutes, then Pogacar is the story of the day. If you watch the whole bike race, then Watt van Aert is the story of the day for me. Because that was, yes, Pogacar won the race. Yes, he was unbelievable. I haven't seen a, 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 a display like Watt van Aert's display in quite some time. Where, like you were saying, Ronan, the rest of the peloton felt like they were just getting yanked on. Just tugged at. Like split into pieces over and over and over and over again until he eventually still made the break. I mean, he's the only rider on the planet right now that I think could do that. Yeah, he was, he was so aggressive that, you know, initially I thought, you know, is he actually trying to get in the breakaway or is he trying to ensure that the breakaway doesn't actually go clear until much later in the stage in order to protect his jersey? And one way to do that 
is for the actual yellow jersey himself to attack. Everybody follows, and that surge in pace for a second is much easier to keep a keep a breakaway under control than if you have your team right on the front for hours on end. Uh, and I think if we sort of quickly realised that that wasn't the intention for Van Aert. He, his intention was to get in the breakaway uh, and presumably go for the, the stage one. Uh, and we've had sort of quite a lot of you know questions about what the hell's Van Aert doing in the break? Why is he in the break? He's in the yellow jersey. What's he doing? Why is the team not riding for him? I think, I think to answer that question, which... I think we have that in our run sheet, so I'll delve into it now and maybe give my opinion at least on, on what I think was happening there. Was I think there's a few things at play. Um, the question is why why was Wild doing this? Yeah, and why on earth was he doing this? Because he already has yellow jersey, and it was probably not the best way to get a stage win. Yeah, well, exactly as as you said, he has the yellow jersey, but what he hasn't had is a team that would defend that yellow jersey for the past few days. If you have. Almost any other team in this peloton has a yellow jersey earlier. They will do what is traditionally done, and that team will ride on the front, defend yellow. And Yumbo have made it clear that they don't want to do that. They've come in for a bit of criticism for for not riding on the front. And so, with it also being a stage that Wout van Aert could win, there was, there was always going to be this situation where if Wout van Aert wasn't in the break, the only team who were going to ride in the peloton was Jumbo Visma and Jumbo Visma don't want to ride so you could you know you, you would have a situation where every other team is looking at a team to ride and that one team is hell-bent on not riding mostly because they're focused on plans to Belfi tomorrow and if they expand their domestics today that is going to come back to to bite them on tomorrow's plans to Belfi so I think what Van Aert was doing was he was probably given a free reign saying you know you you can, we can't defend your yellow jersey for you, but you have free reign to go on the attack. Do as much, ride as aggressively as you want today in the yellow jersey, honor the jersey. And if you can get into a breakaway with 10 or 12 riders, it'll most likely go to the finish. In which case, you have an opportunity to win the stage and you have an opportunity to keep your yellow jersey. But if you're not in the breakaway, we, we, can't, we cannot control a 220 kilometer stage for you. And in that scenario, you have no opportunity to win the stage and no opportunity to keep your yellow jersey. And as, as crazy as it looked for the yellow jersey to be going on the attack with 200 kilometers to go, I, I do it, think it was probably their best bet today. It was the, the, the dictionary definition of the best defense is offense, right? I yeah. mean, that, that's exactly, exactly what it was. In fact, Pogacar said the same thing in his, in his press conference. He was asked about it in his post-race press conference, and I quote, I think I know what they wanted to do. If Van Aert wanted to win the stage today, they would need to pull from the peloton, and the, the implication is that they didn't want to do that. So he decided to go in the breakaway. In the end, uh, there were only three guys. That wasn't a perfect scenario for him. I think a perfect scenario is if there were 10 guys or something with only three, two guys in the end, it was pretty much we could control it in the bunch. So that was what Pogacar said, which is basically your exact read on it, Ronan. And even when it was only three, although White probably realized very, very early on this is not the right situation for me personally. I will not win the stage. I will probably not keep him in Jersey. He's still doing a phenomenal job for the team then by riding in front with two other riders because Jumbo Visma don't have to ride in the front and no other teams can look at them to do any sort of chasing or controlling of the race. And, you know, you might think, well, what does it really matter? But with the racing accident we've seen in the first hour today and that sort of cross tailwind and the terrain that we had, if 
Van Aert sat back and didn't try to go in the break, and Jumbo Visma also weren't prepared to control the race. The race could very easily get completely out of out of out of anybody's control, and then all of a sudden you're looking at a scenario where there's a group of 30 riders gone clear, few GC riders in there with teammates, and Ben O'Connor wins the Tour de France. Yeah. No, Nairo Quintana wins the Tour of France. Yeah. You know, the, perhaps, perhaps a slight exaggeration, but things c- could certainly get that out of hand pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, and that, that's, that's a scenario that no team wants to have. All these GC teams, what they crave is control in some manner, whether it's them controlling or another team controlling. When things are chaotic and you have attacks going left, right and center, that doesn't generally suit a GC rider. Do you think Wavanaugh wanted to go out with a bang today rather than just sort of be uh, shot on television, dropping out of the peloton on super planche and losing his yellow jersey that way? I think he, well, it would be nicer, you know, being aggressive and, and you know, at least putting the race in your own hands and, and giving yeah. yourself a chance of keeping the jersey. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that shows any sort of emotion or has any feelings like that, but I'm yeah. sure deep down he would have preferred to lose the jersey in the way that he did today than to lose the jersey by simply dropping off the back tomorrow. We've been talking about that and like the unfeeling Wout van Aert, but I was chatting to a couple of Belgian journalists today and I was like, does like did Wout van Aert really want to be in the yellow jersey in Belgium? Like and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, like he really cares. And you kind of my maxim is that Belgian journalists don't lie. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but they just don't ever seem to like sugarcoat the truth. So that's nice to hear. Maybe it's something that we don't pick up in translation, but apparently Wout van Aert does care. One other thing that I think sort of, you know, that we, we've seen it worked out for White Van Art in the end. Up, it didn't work out for him, but it was White Van Art who was in the break playing this role for Jumbo Visma today. But I think Jumbo Visma were also p- prepared to play that card with um, Christoph Laporte. He was on, he was aggressive in the early part, and he was, I think he was close enough in GC where he could almost be certain of no matter which move they moved, they got away in, he would be, he would be up there. You know, if effectively virtual yellow jersey on the road, which would have created the same scenario for Jumbo Visma as White Van Aert was up the road. So uh, I think it was, I, I, I do definitely think it was a sort of tactical strategy team play more so than a than a White Van Aert solo, solo move, you know, because mm. initially there was a few questions came up like, is this some sort of, you know, angry move? given what happened yesterday where he had to wait for his teammates and all, I, I, nah. I don't really think there nah. was any of that involved in it. Like. I want to move on to later in the stage. Uh, this is the real, probably probably kind of a crux moment of the entire Tour de France, which is when we stopped at the mall oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> to get our to get our Wi-Fi dongle. Uh, this is a this is a key moment for us in this Tour de France. It's sitting right in front of me right now. We've already we've already you, used. You mean the shopping center? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> we've had a real tour of like sort of regional, uh, understated France today. It's not it, when people imagine what being on the Tour de France is like or seeing it. It's not the stunning mountains. It's being in shopping centers in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, at an orange because uh, ASO has decided this year that because we all have phones that the only available Wi-Fi in the press room is 700 euros per person for the entire month. And so we basically have refused to pay that. Uh, and we're all roaming here. So we had to go buy an orange dong. We've used 583 megabytes. Oh, no, no. 
since what, like three o'clock? But no, no, no this is this is in the last like hour. This is just since I turned it back on. So we've already used like five gigabytes of this thing. What's what are you doing on your computer, Mikey? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, our social social editor, who refuses to be on this podcast. He's sitting at, with us at the table every single night. Straight up refuses to be on the podcast. I, res I respect it. I respect the straight up <laughs> refusal. I can hear someone down the mic. It's it's the people saying that they want to hear from Mike. Yeah. I think so. I think I, we'll get him by the end of the tour. We will get him. We will for sure get him. Uh, anyway, I kid, but that was that was really the most important thing of the entire day for us because now we have functional yeah. Wi-Fi. <laughs> and this is the stuff that we deal with here on the tour. Is just like, how do we get our stuff to the people the people want? And our writing is not worth. 700 pounds Wi-Fi. It really isn't. I think we do no. good stuff, but not 700 pounds Wi-Fi. <laughs> Probably <worth>. not. Probably <laughs> not. Beyond our very important stop at the shopping center, uh, your man there uh, headed. <laughs> <laughs> Kaylee's been learning uh, Irish colloquialisms, <laughs> and I have too, to be fair. But it is—it's completely changed the dynamic in the car. <laughs> Instead of me nearly saying gas station instead of petrol station and having to, you know, really have a word with myself when I was saying, your man. <laughs> your man. So your man was really, was really quite disappointed because he came so close to the yellow jersey for the second day in a row. And I think he's in four seconds off now. Uh, <laughs> who is your man, Kaylee? He got, Nobody he knows. Got, Nobody knows who my man is. <laughs> your man got leapfrogged today. He got leapfrogged. Yeah. He stayed in second place, but is now behind a different person. Uh, he's now behind Tana Pogacar. What? He's behind your other man. He's my, behind my other man over here. Uh, for those who have no idea, no idea what I'm, what I'm talking about, we're, we're talking about Nielsen Palace. Uh, and the reason why I'm using your man instead of Nielsen Palace is because that that's what Ronan does to us all the time. He tells us entire stories with no names of people in them. <laughs> It's, it's actually basis. really endearing after you figure out what's going on. <laughs> it it adds some suspense to the story. Yeah. Yeah. You got to kind of like wait around, get some details, <laughs> and then you <laughs> figure out what we're talking about. <laughs> anyway, Nielsen Palace. Nielsen Palace. He is in second place. Uh, young American guy. Also uh, has Native American heritage, which is super cool. Uh, he was very close to being the first Native American to wear a yellow jersey ever uh, but unfortunately he is four seconds off he just switched yeah he switched who he's behind and the only person so he, he was the last rider to finish in that front group mm. and with Wout Van Aert off the back the so yellow jersey off the back he was going to take yellow unless Pogacar won because he needed the essentially the time bonuses that were at the finish line to take yellow uh and unfortunately, that's what happened. So, uh, you know, we chatted with him briefly after the stage. He was pretty bummed, um, but also just sort of resigned to like, that's the Tour de France and that's the way that we go. The other sort of interesting thing about this to me was he mentioned a couple different times, and maybe this is just a, sort of a bit of politics and a bit of PR. He mentioned a couple different times that Alberto Betiel had just put himself absolutely on the line for him, particularly into the finale. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I'm sure that, like I said, that was a bit of sort of smoothing over the stories of the last 24 hours. Uh, a story which, by the way, we completely forgot yeah. to talk about last <laughs> night. Uh, and, and so we will get into what we think about it in just e a moment. Even though we had the answer from your man's mouth. We, we knew the answer already. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, we'll get into that in a second. If you don't know what we're talking about, just hold hold your horses. So he 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 
purposely brought up Alberto Bettiol a number of times to say, yeah, he just absolutely you know laid himself laid himself down for me. Um, but it, it was it, it was good to see that. Like it was good to see the sort of the team come back together. And it was good if it's true, which I'm assuming it would be. It was good to see Bettiol basically be like, yeah, kind of screwed that one up. I am going to try to make it right today because they had another opportunity to do so. And frankly, it was really their last opportunity to do so because it's a four-second gap. I'm going to take a wild guess and say Nielsen Palace is not beating Pogacar up Planche de Belfi by four seconds tomorrow. Maybe he gets in a breakaway. Yeah. It's possible. It's not impossible. But it's unlikely. Let's go to Betty though. So we skipped this last night. We completely skipped this last night. And, and partially that was because... Uh, we didn't, we forgot. <laughs> I was completely unaware. I hadn't, I had, I'd seen an EF rider on the front and I'd, we'd, we'd not talked about Betio or anything. I was. Well, it's one of those moments where, it, you know, like to, to provide sort of additional, uh, insight into how it goes here at the Tour de France, we watch a lot less of the bike race than you do at home. And mm. so we essentially have to play catch up after each stage because we have to get from start to finish every day. You know, we've got we've got it playing in the car and stuff, but we're also working and writing and doing a million different things. And so it's frankly, yeah, like it's something that I'd seen pop up on Twitter. It had sort of been like passed around a little bit. I went and watched the video, but it didn't strike me as sort of a particularly massive deal until you sort of had the whole context of watching the race. And then we realized, that, oh, yes, we should have talked about that. So let's talk about it. We did speak with Jonathan Botters this morning, and he kind of explained, well, he explained the team's take on the whole thing. So let's just play that right now. Well, I didn't say difficult. I just said interesting. And it was. It was interesting. Um, I mean, end of the day, like, I'm not going to disclose what we talk about in a debrief because that's, that's why it's a private debrief. But, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, listen... End of the day, it took longer than a normal debrief would, and at the end of it, we came to a good conclusion, and we came out of it in a good place as a unified team. So, it took a while to get there, but we got there. Can, can you leave a little bit of the of what what was said of what 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 went wrong in in the in the race yesterday, if anything? Oh, I mean, listen. Very bluntly speaking, that you know, Alberto, you know, he won the most prestigious one-day race in the world a few years ago. And he's had to deal with some incredibly difficult health issues since then. Um, some health issues that for a lot of people would have ended their career. And, you know, his, he hasn't been like really at the front of a race for a while. And he hasn't had really good legs for a long time. And he just got into a situation where he was just overly excited and kind of forgot himself a little bit. And, um, you know, I mean, he, he, I mean, he'll own it. He'll say, I made a mistake. And, um, you know, he, he owns that. You know, he apologized to his teammates and just said, I got too excited. And, you know, that's where we are. That's just, that's, it's, it's really that simple. It's not, it's not, uh, there's not as many conspiracy theories as, as you evil journalists like to make. So, no, I mean, listen, very just bluntly, like, Alberto, you need to come to the point where, you admit that you made a mistake and that you apologize to your teammates and you apologize to the directors. And that's that. And, and if you're willing to do that, then you just move forward and go from there. And he was totally willing to do that and we're moving forward. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not more complicated than that. But anyway, you know, the gist of that is, is that uh, Betiel sort of realized he made a mistake. 
they've apologized, they've made up, it sounds like they're all better. Again, based off what Palace said after today's stage, I think that that is probably valid. But Ronan, we were talking this morning and we actually think this is less of a big deal than it's been made out to be. And, and frankly, less of a big deal than even the team has made it out to be. Yeah, like, I seen it on TV yesterday. I seen the whole incident unfold. And I heard the commentators saying, oh, what's he doing, what's he doing? And to me at the time, it did not it did not strike me as a big deal. But still in all, I was in the paddock after the finish line. I managed to catch Alberto Berriol. And I asked him, first of all, about the day for the team with two riders in the break. But then at the end of the interview, I asked him, in a sort of nicer way, I basically said, what the hell were you doing? Uh, because I knew this was sort of going to come up. Um, and basically what he said was, you know, he was trying to position himself in the cobbles, and that was what... Say, this was yesterday's stage, not today's this, stage, yeah, so you caught him. Yeah. yeah, this was immediately after the cobbled stage yesterday. Uh, and I sort of, I think we both, agree, we all agree here that, you know, it, it looked terrible because you have the breakaway coming back, quickly losing time. They're about 25 kilometers to the finish line, and their gap has dropped to, I think, 1 minute and 12 or something when we see... Betty all hit, hit the front on one of the cobbled sectors, you know, accelerating pretty hard, uh, attacking almost, and continuing that effort uh, for quite a, for quite a bit, but putting in a serious uh, effort and a real hard acceleration. And in any other scenario, if that was on a tarmac road, if that was on a climb, if that was on any other stage of this Tour de France, you would say, "What the hell is Betty all at?" Uh, and and you would be right both for, in terms of. His break, his teammates in the break, their their chances, but also in terms of if Betiol is feeling really good for a stage, you know, making a move like that so far out while he has teammates in front is just something you don't generally need to do. You can usually play on your teammates, but yesterday's a very different stage on the on the cobbles on the pave. It's all about positioning. If you're you know if if you're not at the front, you're trying to be at the front. So while it was. An EF jersey and Alberto Betiol on the front of the, the bunch making that effort. If it wasn't him, it would be somebody else. You know, make no mistake that there is somebody else is going to make the exact same move in that part of the race so late on the cobbled sections. And then what you have is in a situation where at that point it looked like the breakaway was almost certain to get caught, you have a situation where EF's only other option for that stage is sitting further back in the bunch putting himself at risk of puncture, at risk of crashing, at risk of all the chaos that we had on the cobbles yesterday. And, you know, effectively, you could have a situation where the break gets caught and EF lose their best chance of a stage one on, on that stage. So while it looked really, really bad on TV and any other stage of the race, it probably would have been. For me, in that moment, I was perfectly fine with it. And if I was a teammate in front and I had seen it on TV, I'd say I was fine with it as well. Yeah, I mean, but part of the part of what Bediol needs to be doing in that moment is is staying there, and the best way for him to stay there was to sort of float around the front and make sure that he could see where he was going and make sure that he wasn't going to flat and all the rest of the things. Because if he got a flat, then you know, Plan B is out the window, and then they're they're just stuck with Plan A at that point. So I, I think it was overblown a little bit. I do think. You know, I think in the end it was a mistake. I think if you could, if you if you view it with with hindsight, which is essentially what we were all doing last night, and you know how it ends up with the gap being what it was, it looks like a mistake. But in the moment, it feels relatively innocuous to me. It's, it's the discussion with Pagacha, I think, which really got the internet sort of keyboards chattering 
and that sort of that sort of collaboration. There was a but there's there, so much speculation there. Like I mean, he could literally yeah, just there be. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation. He could just be, you know, like he could be asking anything. <laughs> like, yeah, but didn't one of them say like they said to the other one like, "Let's go." I think there was like that. That was discussed, but then you're just looking for another strong rider to break you free. I think. I think that. I think that was because you don't see it that often, and that and that obvious where it's like. And and Berio later punctured slightly after that. Yeah, that's why he wasn't in the group. Yeah, he so said, yeah. we we don't know ultimately what could have been. He could have been with Stoven and Pogaccia, and then all of a sudden you've got three riders chasing. And that could have been a different story. And then Pog's like, right, we both do this. You get the stage win. I'm in yellow. Yeah, it, we've we've said it a million times over, and I might have to put a euro in the jar for saying. Oh, go on, go on. We haven't had it for a while. You're the you're the best of enemy. You're the best of enemies, and all the rival riders are all teammates until it comes to actually trying to win the stage. You know, and while we say that about the breakaway quite often, they all have to work together for a common interest until the point where they stop working together and go for their personal goals. It was, it's, you know, in, in that situation yesterday, you've got three different riders from three different teams who all want to try and win yesterday's stage, and you've got a breakaway ahead that looks like it's almost certain to get caught. It, well, just having a conversation with a rider beside you is no one. No, Ronan, it's a conspiracy sort of, yeah. because they have coaches who know each other, and then they all agreed, and it was all and UAE is nefarious and UAE is kind evil. of an Italian team, and Betty yeah. Italian. I mean, it, it, it goes so deep. It goes very deep. It goes very deep. What was it? What uh, so was is the, is the jar is the jar just a cliche jar? It's just a cliche jar now, right? Yeah. So any cliche. So here's what we need. Here's what we need listeners to do. In particular, our Velo Club members, because you can just ping us on Slack with this information. You need to listen for our cliches because we don't always catch them. No. You need to listen for our cliches and you need to tell us how many we've had in a given episode so we can count up our euros and at the end of the at the end of the tour donate them to a good cause. Yeah. So that's that's my request for everybody. Anyway, back to Betty All. You were saying something. I was just gonna say that it's fine now because EF are all friends and no one's gonna have their crocs thrown out the bus window. <laughs> so there will be si sixteen well, individual crocs all in a line on the bus. Maybe we should be hoping that they fall out more often there if there's a chance those crocs get chucked. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm slightly curious so why Fork down. So Ah la Forchet. Speaking to Betty All yesterday, he told me that he had sort of the go ahead from effectively had to go ahead across the radio from the team car behind, they just told him not to go full gas because it was so far for the finish. Yeah. And yet when we speak to Jonathan Vodders today, it's a different story that he made a mistake and- I love I it. Th I think Spin zone everywhere. Yeah. Spins, oh, wow, I'll just be very clear. Jonathan Vodders is not involved in day-to-day -day tactical decisions in that team. So he probably wasn't the best person to be the spokesman for this incident. But he was the best person to be spanking Beto afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but but he, but he was also the most likely to provide some good quotes, and so that's who all the media talked to yeah. this morning. He was looking resplendent in some some cowboy boots and kind of like like yeah. boot cut jeans. I've never seen him in real life before, and I did not expect him to be dressed as like I think I, just he looked like a real. Like, this is gonna sound so like small time British, but he looked like a real American, <laughs> like a true red blooded patriot. No comment. Uh, no, no comment on that. No, a big no, belt I, buckle. no. I have to comment on that. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a, it's a look. I would say, you, Johnny, you come visit me sometime in Durango, and I'll, I'll take you okay. out into like ranch country, and yeah, I'll show like you, that. I'll show you what those guys actually look like. Oh, okay. And what Jonathan was. Um, yeah, I need some context. Yeah, what Jonathan was was going for, but with boots that were a couple hundred dollars more expensive. Got it. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> I can't wait.
let's move on. Today's episode is brought to you by Decathlon and Decathlon's in-house performance cycling brand, Van Riesel, which I did check, that is how you pronounce it, despite the fact that Ronan thinks I'm wrong. The official apparel sponsor of Team Cofidis. The Van Riesel collection is designed, tested, and created in Northern France. Check out decathlon.com for bikes, kits, helmets, cycling shoes, and more, all available at unbeatable prices. The complete kit for under 150 bucks at Decathlon, it's possible. Decathlon's mission is to make sports and the outdoors more accessible, and they do that by creating quality products at unbelievable value. Check out the Van Riesel racing jersey. It's light, breathable, and aerodynamic, and made with recycled plastic bottles. That's super cool. The performance jersey packs the features, and it's only 70 bucks. Head over to decathlon.com to learn more. And thanks to Decathlon for sponsoring today's episode. Another fun little story from today is that obviously we've been charting the, 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 not really the rise and fall, it's sort of been the rise because Quinn Simmons has been third and around third, I think in the, in the King of the Mountains classification with minus one point. He obviously was in the break today and I regret to inform everyone that he dropped to fourth today. Oh no. But he's now not on minus one, he's on one. He's on one point. He's gained two points and gone down to a place. Which is amazing. This is like, this will be some bar quiz in the yeah. future where, like, which rider was where is this second, bar, third, and fourth on the King of the Mountains competition in the Tour de France on negative points without ever scoring a point. I will hit that buzzer so hard it will go through the table. And, and when they finally scored a point, they went backwards in the standings. I want it. Where is this bar? This I need, is, we need to go there. That's where we should record the podcast Tour de France. from. Madness. Uh, there was bike racing uh, bar quiz at the Harrogate Worlds. How was that? When I was there. Yeah, okay. I, I grabbed a drink with Peter Stewart, who's the editor-in-chief now of Cycling News, yep. uh, and was at that point over at Cyclist. Uh, and yeah, we, we partook in some pub quiz and did terrible, lost to all of the amateurs, despite yeah. technically being professionals. So I don't know what that says about us, but... It does exist. We don't get to watch bike races, Kelly, remember? We, they, we <laughs> That's don't, true. We don't know anything. <laughs> we just pretend to know what's happening afterwards. Well, let's, let's quickly pivot over to the Giro before we get into tomorrow's Tour de France stage. So today was, well, it was the Queen stage. It was either stage six or seven. I don't think we have yet decided, oh, yeah. decided what <laughs> we're doing here. Uh, God, this is so silly. Uh, there's a lot of things about the Giro Donne that are just, just frustratingly unprofessional, I guess is the right word. Anyway, it was Queen's Day today, and it was a phenomenal race. It was a mountaintop finish won by Juliette Lebou of DSM, who was the last rider from a 14-woman breakaway. Annemiek van Bluten was second. Navi Garcia was third. So Lebou was the only one who survived. And Van Vleuten won, not won, gained a little bit of time on GC. Uh, I don't know exactly how much because I have don't have that number in front of me, but was watching the finish today and it was uh, not that much. She's probably going to win the bike race anyway probably, yes. because, because it's Anamique uh, and apparently she can win the Giro on like 80% and she'll probably win the Tour de France, I would imagine, in a couple of weeks because that's what she's actually peaking for. Regardless, 
It was a phenomenal stage. Go try to catch the highlights if you can. And let's hear from somebody who's in the race. We got an audio diary from Leah Thomas. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Leah Thomas with Trek Segafredo. Um, we had a hill climb stage today. It was flat leading up into the stage. Um, a break went up the road. And um, we kind of let it go, just trying to save our legs for the coming stages, which are pretty hard. Um, we protected um, Longo, um, and she did an awesome climb. Um, really focusing on going her own pace and pacing herself. And I'm really proud of her effort and um, her um, grit today and her digging deep. So that was pretty nice. We had a super long transfer. It was over two and a half hours. We went down like this crazy mountain. Um, but this part of Italy is absolutely breathtaking. Um, I'll try to give you guys more of an update tomorrow, but things are pretty hectic. Um, I have to rent a massage. Superb, as always, from Leah. I've really, I've, I've been very, very much enjoying these diaries from Leah and Neve. It's just, it's, it's, it's insight we don't normally get. And to be perfectly honest, if we asked one of the male cyclists at the Tour de France to do the exact same thing, we would struggle to get as much detail uh, or just sort of, well, just have it be as well done, basically. Mm, 100%. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate the time and any energy and effort that, that they've been putting into these. And it's just, yeah, it's a perspective that we don't normally we don't normally get. Let's get back to the Tour de France, though. The lovely proprietor of this place just came over to remind us that we need to be out of here in the next half hour. Uh, but he's very nice. He's extremely nice. I feel like he's so nice that we should probably mention the fact that Food was actually pretty good, and we're at the Dragonfly. Dragonfly. If, if you ever find yourself here, if you ever Dragonfly find, is a safe a safe home for you. It is a safe Despite home for you. Despite what I said earlier in the book. Maybe you hadn't eaten your food yet. We're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> the desserts, a big fan of the desserts that they have. Huge, huge We will eat at a worse place this tour. Mm. Oh, absolutely. At least one. We haven't even taken Mikey to a buff Buffalo Grill yet. I it, can't. We sh when we pod from Buffalo Grill, then I can I can retire from cycling media. That's ticked every box. I mean, it will happen. It is guaranteed to happen. In fact, it'll probably happen. Well, not in the next couple of days because we're headed into Switzerland for a little while. Mm. Uh, but it could be tomorrow night actually. Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow night is a, is a tomorrow night is guaranteed from a logistical standpoint for those of us here on the ground to be. Oh yeah. I believe. The technical term is clusterfuck, yeah, uh, and it is it is going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot tomorrow, so we may end up at a at a Buffalo Grill. I apologize if you're listening with children. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> but they need to know. But they need to know. They need to know what it's going to be like for us tomorrow. Uh, anyway, tomorrow's stage, Planche de Belfi. Let me pull out the road. Not just the Planche de Belfi, the super super Planche de Belfi. Has there ever been a more apt name for a cycling climb than the super planche? Super, you ask any rider how today went, went super. It's super legs, super yeah. good feeling, super sensation. It was a super planche. On the super planche. One of my favorite things is how Engli like native English-speaking riders start using weird Euro cycling terms like super all the mm. time. Like literally no one in America has said the word super in 10 years. That's because both the Itch brothers said enough to make up for the rest of the planet. <laughs> exactly. And they say for sure as well. They pick up the Dutch for sure a lot. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Normally. Normally. <laughs> the Dutch normally is my favorite normally. 
Sensations is another big one. Yeah. Yeah, Norm Sensations, that is, yeah. Normally, the Sensations are super. <laughs> you do the Dutch. You do better the Dutch. Normally, uh. Normally, uh. There we go. We need the uh. Dutch the is Flemish. Flemish. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's both, actually. Uh, anyway. Let's get into tomorrow's stage. So, La Super Planche de Belfi. I've got the page pulled up here in the road book. According to this, we've got seven kilometers at 8.7%. So just just to put that in like context of today, finish climb today seemed, it seemed pretty good, right? It was a good little finish climb. Finish climb today was 1.1 or 1 1.2 mm. kilometers at 5.8%. So this is 7K at 8.7 significantly steeper significantly longer it's a just we're in it we're, it's a totally different ball game than what we experienced does it give today. you the pitches what it pitches up to it absolutely does we've got a peach peak a peach a peak and this is the fun part of super planche versus just regular planche the last half a k almost a full k is 24 percent on dirt just when you gravel. say that 24%, like immediately my brain goes, I wonder if anybody ever ever stood there. <laughs> <laughs> Just Goodness straight up sake. and down some gravel at the top of Splotch Belfi. That seems like a terrible idea. So there's this pitch of 24% at the very, very top. The rest of the planche is, is the same planche that people that we've ridden many, many, many times. Uh, you know, it's got pitches of around sort of 13% right at the beginning, a whole big long stretch at 11 through the middle, uh, another 20% stretch that comes about a K and a half from the finish, sort of right before it turns to dirt. And then it turns to dirt, and we get this 24% super gnarly, super nasty pitch up to the top. It's going to be really hard. The, the, it's an interesting stage, though, because so it's, it's the stage itself, sort of taken in, in its entirety, is not incredibly difficult. There are two Category 3 climbs ahead of the Category 1, and the whole first... What is it? Seventy-one kilometers is is not flat, but it's pretty close. Uh, so it's it's of one hundred and seventy-six total, I should say. So it's not a it's not a it's not anywhere near as difficult as, for example, this you know, some of the coming stages in the Alps are going to be, or the Hottecombe stage in the Pyrenees is going to be. But it is unquestionably the first real test, and for that, it's going to be some some pretty fantastic watching. I can't wait. I'm on the motorbike tomorrow. First yeah. time ever. Are we gonna try to? Are you gonna try to do some pod audio from the motorbike? Is I think happen? so. I don't know how usable it will be. Um, it's not gonna be like Wiggo on the motorbike. <laughs> it's gonna be very different. Very not having one at Tour de France on the mm. motorbike. I bet, I bet you get some good stuff. Speaking of Wiggo, I'm playing a good game at the moment. Oh yeah, you are. It's really good actually. It's Wiggo probably one yes, of the best games. Wiggo no. <laughs> if you don't already follow Ronan on Instagram. Uh, and myself and Jotty, for that matter. Yeah, no, don't follow me. Just follow Ronan for the Wigger game. Yeah, you need Ronan for the Wigger game. What is it? Just at Ronan McLaughlin? Is that all it is? Uh, Ronan, on, Ronan underscore. You can find him Mac through the cycling tips Instagram as well, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, we posted some stuff. Posted some stuff lately. Um, anyway, Ronan's playing a game where we spot people who <laughs> may or may not be Bradley Wiggins, uh, and we post them on the internet and we let people vote on whether that is or isn't. Bradley Wiggins, because it turns out he's got doppelgangers all over the place. Anyone with a beard or a shaved head, it's like they could be Wiggins. No, there's there, there's a pose and there's a style, 
as yeah, there also, is. And apparently the socks are a dead giveaway. What well, there aren't any. Because he doesn't really wear socks these days. Yeah, he's just all ankles all the yeah. time. No socks apparently is a dead giveaway yeah. for it being yep. the, the real Bradley Wiggins. Well, make you, go check out Ronan's Instagram page and 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 vote and see if you if you can identify the real Wiggo. It's harder than you might think. <laughs> this is what will keep us entertained for the next two weeks. Yes. If we don't have a bike race anymore. Uh, there's a little bit more to learn about La Planche de Belfi. Uh, super planche de Belfi. And so let's pop over to Jose for our little, our little segment at the end of today's episode. We're just going to cut it off after that. So we're done. We're out. We're going to finish you off with a bit from Jose. And then we'll be back tomorrow super from from the top of plush what uh, I, i'll be there we haven't decided yet. johnny's going up because obviously he's going to be in the moto he's going to go to the top it's a 23 kilometer distance 24. 24 kilometer distance from the press room to the top of the mountain and so we essentially have to make some logistical decisions but i'll be there and i think we'll be, we'll be there. there as well i think we'll be up there well if we'll you think it. we'll be up there we'll be up there because the only thing stopping us was going to be you. <laughs> because I know it's going to be... Your man here was going to stop us. <laughs> it's going to be a cluster duck. Uh, your man wants to build your man's bike and ride it to the top. Yeah, Rona wants to ride my bike to the top. Will you fit on my bike? We'll make it fit. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Anyway, let's hear from Jose and then we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. After a time trial, some sprint stages and cobbles, we arrive at the first uphill finish in the Tour de France the Super Plonge des Belles-Filles. And while the etymology of the name actually means lieu peuplé des Belles-Filles, or place inhabited with nice beech trees, that later morphed into Belles-Filles in French, Belles-Filles, Belles-Filles, there's also a local legend attached to the place. And this is that legend. The story is set during the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648. And this was one of the many wars between Catholics and Protestants in those days. The intervention of the Swedish army in France took place between 1630 and 1635, and so does our legend. A long time ago, not far from the Chateau de Passavant, lived an old family of farmers whose daughter, Inès, was remarkably beautiful. She looks like a queen, said some, and she's virtuous like a saint, added others. She also excelled in the humblest of jobs, and spun wool like no other. One morning, the village was in great turmoil. The Swedish army, who had invaded the lands of Lorraine, were approaching Planchébat, and they were spreading terror. The soldiers had a horrible reputation of looting, massacres, rape, fire, and nothing was spared to the inhabitants in its path. They can pierce my body with a sword, but they will not touch my wife nor my daughter, said the father of Ines when the Swedish soldiers approached their little village. All the men in the village affirmed this resolution to resist as long as possible. Ines listened in silence to everyone's word, words and admired everyone's courage. But she felt the best way to escape the barbarians was to hide. Up the mountain, much higher than the village, was a pond surrounded by centuries-old great oaks. The Swedish soldiers would never discover that hiding place, Ines thought. She gathered all the young women and said to them, Come, my sisters, we will be safe in this refuge while waiting for the soldiers to move on. The young girls followed Ines. 
they knew her as a wise girl. They put on their prettiest white dresses and braided their hair and went up the mountain to the pond, holding hands and singing a hymn. Suddenly the bells tolled in the village. The Swedish soldiers were coming. Cries, howls, the whinnying of horses and dull shocks could be heard while the soldiers attacked the farms. Ines remained hopeful that the soldiers would not come to the pond high in the mountains. But sadly, the noises drew closer and closer until she saw a troop of soldiers on horseback appear through the trees. The Swedish captain was captivated by the beauty of Ines. She thought he looked like a god. The captain halted and gazed at the young girl, and he was speechless with wonder. In that brief look, there was a moment of love between the two, and the captain gestured to his company to stop and pardon the young women. But it was too late. The screaming soldiers were already rushing wildly towards their prey. The distraught young girls had crowded around Ines, who, setting an example, threw herself into the dark waters of the pond to escape the unleashed brutes. The other girls imitated her without hesitation. The captain immediately rushed to save Ines, but when he managed to pull her out of the water, she was just a lifeless body. He took her in his arms like a frail child and laid her on a bed of moss. In despair, he placed a kiss on her forehead, picked a white forest flower and laid it in her hands. And finally, he took a piece of wood and his dagger. Carved in the wood was an epitaph for Ines and her unfortunate companions. Nowadays, there's a statue on top of La Planche des Belles Filles as a memory to this legend. Music